Hello again and welcome to another episode of Cloud9Fin, your weekly update on leveraged finance and other related bits and bobs. The last US-focused episode we put out was just before Labor Day weekend, and that already feels like a distant memory, so we hope everyone's holding up out there as the primary market ramps up again. This week, we're talking to a new investment fund that isn't just accustomed to controversy, it often feels like it's actively seeking it by pushing back hard against ESG investing, which, as you all know, is one of the hottest trends of recent years. Their founder, Vivek Ramaswamy, has argued that ESG investing is more about virtue signaling than virtuous behavior. He's argued that it's one of the main reasons Americans are paying more for gas and electricity. He's even argued that the big ESG funds are tantamount to a corporate cartel. So, in short, Strive's entire ethos is based around the idea that ESG is essentially a scam and they're offering an alternative. And that message seems to be resonating. Strive recently launched four new ETFs, and that comes after the success of its inaugural ETF vehicle, an energy-focused fund with the provocative ticker Drill. So this is probably a good moment to introduce our guest. He's Matt Cole, Head of Product and Investments at Strive, and he's joining us today from Columbus, Ohio, where the company is based. So welcome, Matt, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Will. Excited to be here. So... You're actually pretty new to Strive, right? You, you only joined a couple of months ago. Yeah, so Strive itself is, is a new company. And I joined prior to us even going live from CalPERS. So, you know, grew up in California my whole life, was born and raised, family, family of law enforcement officers who all have their pensions with CalPERS. And, and so, you know, when, when I kind of, you know, realized that my skill in life was math, and I wanted to be based in the Sacramento, California area, CalPERS was my dream job. So I went, went to school, got a job at CalPERS, was there for over 16 years, worked my way up to a portfolio manager, managing over $70 billion of assets, primarily actively managed funds, and you know had a lot of success there. You know, the funds that I managed were among the best, if not the best performing funds at CalPERS and and really strong even across the the United States. Right. So I I wanted to ask about that because, you know, that background is is quite interesting. The the time uh, at CalPERS, you know, most of your career and obviously CalPERS has been one of the most vocal proponents of ESG investing, right? So how how and why did you choose to move from there to Strive, which is kind of pushing in the opposite direction? Yeah. So my why for CalPERS was never for the sustainable investing part. Although, you know, sometimes I find them to be noble goals and might even agree with them personally. I always felt that that was a breach of fiduciary duty. And I think that that was actually a fairly common opinion in the investment staff where, you know, even when it came to when CalPERS divested from tobacco prior to my time at CalPERS, um, when I was still a student, you know, a lot of the investment staff recommended against it, but it was from the board down. You know, my why was my why when I joined CalPERS was always to provide retirement security for state workers like my parents, um, and that gave me a lot of motivation. And why I still hope to this day, you know, to the bottom of my heart that that they succeed in providing retirement security. But you know, my my passion when it comes to investing is strictly along the lines of fiduciary duty of what is the best solution for clients. And I think that that is unless a client gives you 
an explicit directive to pursue social or political objectives in investing that your objective as an asset manager is to maximize return for clients. And when Strive started, I, I saw this, you know, ESG movement. I, I think it's the, the biggest fiduciary breach in modern times. And clearly, I don't think it's something that most Americans want. I thought Strive is taking a really good first principles approach to how you should behave as a fiduciary. And I was excited to be on the ground floor. Can you give us an idea of, of Strive's client base? I mean, are you guys targeting kind of exclusively retail investors or is there an institutional uh, kind of um, aspect to your business as well? So currently it's primarily retail, but our aim is to compete directly with BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard and have significant exposure with the institutional investment community. That's definitely in our, in our long-term goals. And I, I think, you know, at its heart, you know, our client base, I think, represents approximately maybe two-thirds of America. The two-thirds of America that think that companies should stay out of all political and social goals. And there's, you know, polls and research that backs up that it's probably about two-thirds of Americans that, that agree with us. So it's not a right versus left political issue. We view it as more of a managerial class versus everyday citizen issue. And also just what, you know, first principles, what should an asset manager be? Right. So in terms of your approach to institutional investors and, and your ambitions in that space have you got any pushback from institutions based on your marketing i mean i'm thinking about your your ceo and founder vivek i mean he's quite outspoken and his rhetoric seems to quite consciously tap into a, a certain mindset that is increasingly prevalent these days and strives general vibe is I guess, kind of anti-establishment in the sense that ESG is kind of now the norm. So I'm curious how that messaging goes down with pensions and sovereign wealth funds and the like. Yeah, so so, so far it's gone really well. I mean, we haven't had a conversation with CalPERS yet, but uh, you know, in, in all of the public pensions that we've spoken with, it's gone very well. And I think part of the reason for that is that we do not brand ourselves as anti-ESG or anti-woke. You'll often see that as the title of articles discussing Strive, but we are explicitly pro-excellence. So we have um, coined a term, excellence capitalism, which is a mandate for corporations to focus exclusively on providing excellent products and excellent services over any social or political agenda. And so at its core, we are very neutral when it comes to the nobility of any social or political goal. And our goal is to bring corporations to the center to focus on excellent products and excellent services. So we're not trying to turn corporations into conservative corporations from maybe where they are right now, liberal. We're literally trying to tell them to remain mission focused. And that we believe is actually a unifying message. And so I think when we actually get into these conversations and they go deeper than, you know, a 10 second sound, cl sound clip, the, the, you know, feedback has been overwhelmingly positive so um I, w I want to talk about what that looks like in practice you know these 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 products that you say are, are kind of uh are striving for for excellence in terms of giving investors basically what they want so strive's first funds have been pretty successful in terms of attracting investors the uh the drill etf for example um i'm pretty cl pretty clear on what makes it different to an a kind of ESG oriented fund, but how exactly does it differ from the 
many many other enp etfs that are already available and often cheaper like i'm sure you hear the comparison all the time of xle mm -hmm. like how how is it different yeah so you know historically when looking at etfs they've really become commoditized especially the passive products right where you have effectively neutralized for risk return and then you choose the lowest fee provider and so you know drill is substantially similar to XLE and even more similar to IYE. How we differ is in our corporate governance. And so I think as if we take a step back, we believe fundamentally that corporate governance can have a material impact on the return of any corporation. I think that's something that BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, CalPERS, CalSTRS would all agree with, that corporate governance matters. And so we agree with them. We think that needs to be a fourth kind of checkbox when looking at different, you know, ETFs and what what asset manager is right for your investment needs. And so how we differ is explicitly in both the vote, the proxy votes, but then also in the the voice, the engagements that we will have with corporations. Last week we went public with our first public engagement with Chevron. Um, it was covered in the Wall Street Journal. And you'll see we've also had over 10 engagements that are not public yet and, and expect to have our next public engagement within the next couple of weeks. And, and that kind of like activist investment mindset, the engaging with these companies, changing them for the better, you know, we think is our value add. And, you know, explicitly when it comes to the oil and gas company, you know, happy to go into this, but, you know, a lot of these proposals that have passed over the last couple of years specifically in the energy industry, have been against the board of, board of directors' recommendations. So the board of, board, of, board of directors will recommend against certain you know, shareholder proposals, and then you'll have BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, CalPERS, CalSTRS vote for it and implement an agenda that we don't think is in the best interest of shareholders. Right. So, yeah, I have a question about, I mean, uh, on on that note, the the Texas Comptroller recently blacklisted some very large asset managers and banks, including BlackRock and UBS, and that was because of their stance on ESG. Um, you know some of the decisions that you've just been talking about, and also in Florida, the State Administrative Board recently banned pension funds from even considering ESG factors when investing. Um, so, you know, following quite a few months now of kind of increasingly harsh rhetoric towards ESG, a, a bit of a sort of backlash. Um, this seems to represent kind of quite tangible action. So how significant do you think those two developments are in the context of what we were just talking about? I think it's significant. I think it's a, a, a waking up from, from a lot of these, you know, political actors that, hey, the asset management industry has become politicized. Do I think that their response, their first response was perfect? Probably like not if, if I was to write that, but I, but I think it's, it's an important first step and an acknowledgement that there's been politicization of the asset management industry and maybe it hasn't been in the best interest of, the, of their shareholders. And you know, as they think of you know, the right response, you know, I think they'll get to, to a good place. But I think this was just the first response and kind of a, you know, a waking up. I, I don't, I don't think that, you know, the majority of politicians even realized how big of a deal corporate governance was. So I think that, you know, as they get presented with, Hey, did you see how BlackRock voted on X or voted on Y? 
there's kind of this initial shock from them. And I think that this first wave of response is, is kind of a response to that shock. And I, and I think that, you know, you know, California, as an example, has been very active on the corporate governance side for years. And you've seen, you know, the governor, I mean, even this, this year, there was a, a proposal to ban fossil fuel investments in California. It ended up not passing. But I think this is, you know, in my view, what I see has happened is that I think politics got put into the asset management industry. And now you have people that are that are trying to pull it out in different ways. And that's being branded as political. But I actually think that that's backwards. I think politics got put into the asset management industry and pulling it out might feel political, but it's actually not. It's it's removing and getting back to focusing on on what the asset management industry should should be. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point you make there. Um, I, I want to talk a bit more about energy because that's one of the areas that feels like it's been most impacted by the growth growth of ESG. I mean, that's kind of inevitable. Um, and it's also been impacted by the recent backlash against ESG. Um, and in energy, it feels like the kind of the industry's fortunes, as it were, have, have sort of switched very quickly um, obviously, that's due in no small part to to Russia and Ukraine and and some other factors, but that being probably the one of the biggest ones. Um, so, I feel like the issue about energy and and financing energy, anything surrounding that, has actually become extremely political and kind of unavoidably so. So, this and the stakes are very high. So it's it's like this current crisis is forcing some tactical decisions that inevitably distract from the the broader mission of slowing climate change and it's kind of similar to the the grain crisis caused by by the ukraine conflict and you know surrounding issues of long-term food chain sustainability and that kind of thing but climate change isn't going away the global nutrition crisis isn't going away i mean these 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 things still need addressing so a question how strives approach is a inherently non-political um given that it's kind of difficult not to be political and be like how it helps solve these longer term concerns yeah so i think this requires taking just a fundamental step back you know strive no one at strive to my knowledge is not a believer in climate change however if you believe in climate change, you can believe in it and say the right place to address it is through the political process. So take an as an example, the Paris Agreement. Congress has not ratified that, yet you have our large asset managers that joined the Climate Action 100 and push in policies that are in adherence to an agreement that our, that our political process has chosen not to ratify. We think these issues belong in the political arena to be discussed as a society where every citizen has one, one vote, one voice. When it comes to actual solutions that we think are economically viable, we are fundamentally bearish on both solar and wind. We think that it's been largely subsidized and the ROI just has not made sense. And specifically the reliability of those sources of energy, I think you're seeing are just not up to standards. And you're seeing that in Texas and in California. We're very bullish on nuclear. We think that, you know, if, you know, legislatively the, the restrictions came down a little bit, nuclear makes a lot of sense. It's actually probably the, the cleanest source of energy there is. And so that we would be very supportive of 
Um, and you know, you'll probably see in some of our future products, you know, there will be a nuclear component to some of them. You know, when it comes to fossil fuels, you know, I think that you can be, you know, concerned about climate change and also say, I think that, you know, United States energy companies are among the cleanest in the world. I believe they're in the top three clean with Norway and Canada and saying that it would be in the financial best interest of those companies to drill more. And by drilling more, they can actually provide, you know, a fundamental need for our world and pollute less than someone like PetroChina might be for drilling the same amount of oil. I mean, I guess the the broader question I have about all of this in, in the sort of um, in, in the yeah, I guess this is a political question, but also just a um, a philosophical and practical one as well is that Strive's kind of spiel is is quite reactionary against ESG, or at least it's it's often sort of couched in those terms. Um, one of the things that Strive, Strive seems to be accusing the ESG movement of is being too reactionary, by which I mean making big sweeping moves without necessarily thinking through the the nuance or the consequences, like the Biden administration planning to phase out coal, but not really having a transition plan set up. It feels like that's the sort of reactionary move that you guys seem to be pushing back against. But your solution to it is couched in almost equally reactionary terms, it seems to me. So do, do you think there's an element of of, uh, of maybe a little bit of hypocrisy there? No, I, you know, I, I don't really see it. I, I would say that, you know, as an example, if, if we push forth a proposal to corporations, let's say U.S. energy company A, you should evaluate all future capital expenditures purely on measurable return on investment over any social or political agenda. Like, I don't see that being political. I think that, you know, when you think about like as an example, are you familiar with scope three emissions? You might have to refresh me on that a little bit. Okay. So, you know, scope one and scope two emission policies are are related to emissions that your company might directly impact. So like through, you know, drilling for new oil, if you're, if you're an oil and gas producer, that you are directly responsible for those. Scope three is up and down your supply chain. So, you know, we like to use examples because they, they would fall under this of, you know, your auditor that you might have to audit your auditor or, you know, if you produce oil and Amazon delivery trucks drive that you have to count for their emissions instead of Amazon themselves. We don't think that scope three emissions make sense. You actually see BlackRock starting to get behind this a little bit now as well, that scope three emissions might make, might not make sense. But what's interesting is that literally last year, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard voted for companies like Chevron to have to account for scope three emissions. And this was against Chevron's board of directors recommendations. It was actually a fundamental part of our letter to Chevron last, last week of that we didn't understand how that made sense and how it was in the best interest of, sharehold, of Chevron shareholders to have to account for these scope three emissions. 2022 comes about another proposal comes forward that would have even increased the burden on, on scope three emissions. This time BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard actually voted or at least BlackRock voted no against this proposal. But what was interesting was that you had on one hand, Larry Fink publicly saying that he's never been for scope free emissions, that he doesn't want companies that to be the environmental police, but in the actual response. So every time BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard vote, 
they actually put a, a reason, their rationale. We'll do the same when we vote. And their reasoning was that Chevron had, that they actually agree with scope three, but that Chevron had already made sufficient progress. So this year they thought that the vote was duplicative. Our view is that scope three emissions just never make sense. You'll notice that we didn't actually write our letter to Chevron regarding scope one and scope two emissions. We didn't take a stand there. We took a, a very narrow specific stand on where we thought these policies didn't make sense. And so we are trying to be involved in the nuance of the conversation, not just, and that's why we say we're not anti-ESG, um, but I do think that when you think about risks of a company, I think the ESG movement has been totally overblown in the importance that it should be in investment management decisions. Like if I'm saying, hey, should, should I buy this company? What are the most material concerns I should be thinking about for a yes or no decision? I think ESG has moved way too high up in the important scale to where it should be. And I think oftentimes it's led to companies behaving in ways that aren't value maximizing. Yeah, what you say is interesting because I actually speak to a lot of investors out there. Um, you know, we're, we're focused on credit, um, but a lot of these investors also invest in equity. Um, uh, a lot of the people I speak to would argue that um, what ESG has kind of become these days is as opposed to green finance, for example, you know, green bonds where um, the money that is being raised is specifically for some kind of sustainable project, right? Like a like a, a solar plant or, or a you know, um, something like that. Um, as, as opposed to that, ESG has kind of become more just a, a system, a framework of ways in which to quantify the risk that climate change and um you know social issues and and governance issues pose to companies and, and put a kind of dollar price on them rather than being a mechanism by which change actually happens and it seems like you know you're talking about um those tools of, of quantification just actually in many cases not making sense so i i kind of i wanted to ask are there any aspects of um you know esg scoring and and that kind of quantifying of uh companies environmental and social and governance impact and that kind of thing are, are there any aspects of that that you think actually do make sense are there any that are, that are worth keeping if you could if you could rewrite esg from the ground up well i think you know if i was to re if i was to you know rewrite how you think about risk in a portfolio from a ground from the ground up perspective that any good investor would take into account every single risk possible. So that could include risks that might be, you know, labeled ESG that or that might fall under them. I, I would push back that I have not actually seen anything in ESG when ever, at least in my space, that I thought was value add. It was more of a, you know, hey, you know, tell us how, like, you know, are, are you familiar with the, United Nations Principally Responsible Investing UNPRI statement. Mm -hmm. I had to fill that out for several years in my, in my old seat. And that's multiple hundred page long document. You go through, you, you know, you talk through how you're, you know, you know, implementing these, these ESG procedures. And, you know, even at CalPERS, it was a lot of how can we justify that what we're doing fits into this ESG lens? And it, and it felt like, you know, a lot of greenwashing in, in effect, but, you know, I think that the actual impact, and, and this is where I think you see, 
you know, both sides not being happy. You have, you know, like Tariq Fancy, the, you know, the guy, the sustainable investing guy from BlackRock that left that doesn't think that ESG has actually materially helped the environment or, or, or society enough. And, and, you know, and, and in large part, I would, I would say that I don't think it's actually helped society or, or the environment a lot, but I do think that it's imposed changes in corporations that have been value destructive. And I think that, you know, the, the E, the environment part is kind of where the spotlight's shining today. I think you'll see us shine a spotlight in the near future on the S. And, you know, frankly, the S component was a much bigger part of what I saw as the issue from, from CalPERS and how I saw impact being driven in, in corporations in ways that I thought were not in the best interest of companies. Um, so I think that, you know, this this discussion, this debate is, you know, kind of just in the first round of, of discussions and there's a lot more to discuss here. But, you know, I, I hope we can come to a point where, you know, in my view, these corporations would be best if, you know, they were apolitical and we could come and be unified together, you know, as citizens and in a mission, as employees and a mission or whatever that mission is of this of a company, rather than, you know, issues that one side of the political aisle might agree on. Right. OK, so I want to go into another kind of example here. Um, the other day, I actually found myself when I was uh, chatting with someone about this in, in the strange position of saying that I almost felt sorry for the invest investment banks um, because I remember covering these situations back in 2018 and 2019 when there was a lot of ESG momentum and there were all these hearings happening in DC with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, and, and the banks were really being pushed to cut back on lending to private prison companies and firearms manufacturers and that kind of thing. And many of them actually did that and they they pulled back and they, they sort of... Um, they they stopped lending to those clients and now it's 2022 and you know we, we talked about texas and florida and, and the blacklisting the other day so now banks and investment firms are getting blacklisted by certain states for being too esg conscious albeit in those cases it's um well in the texas case at least it was it seemed more focused around energy rather than prisons or, or firearms so prisons and firearms as an example where would strive stand on industries like that and if uh if you is it a matter of just not taking a view at all and um evaluating it purely on you know whether it's a whether it's a good business or is there any kind of um question around sort of social responsibility that comes into it at all so purely based off of it's a good business. I think that those are great examples because I think those are both very politically charged issues that, you know, putting restrictions on lending to firearms companies, or you might've seen in the last week that, you know, Visa, MasterCard are now labeling gun purchases. And, you know, again, this is something where if, if you take a step back and you say, okay, as an, as an asset owner, as, as an owner of these companies managing money for a client, is this in the best interest of my of my of my customers? I don't see the case how it is, and you know I I do see the case how you know on on the gun issue you know you had you know Calsters come out and lobby and to uh, Mastercard to start labeling for to to track gun rights, and then you had Elizabeth Warren talk about it, and now this week Visa and Mastercard are are now labeling gun purchases. You know 
my view is that this gets into set up sort of a, a social credit scoring system that I think is very dangerous because, you know, you might think that's in the best interest of society. I might disagree. Maybe I don't. You know, it, it really doesn't matter what my individual view on, on these issues are. I, I don't think that you want Goldman Sachs being the credit police of who can access credit or not. That's a very dangerous route to be on. If Congress itself wants to legislate these things, that's great. But otherwise, I think you're getting into an issue where it's going to be very divisive. And frankly, I've never seen one of these sorts of issues fall on the side that conservatives would agree with it and liberals won't. It's, it's one-sided. And, it's, and, and those two issues you brought up are both one-sided. Right. Well, yeah, the, the only thing I was, I was going to say as a counter to that is surely there comes a point where if you're invested in you know, a firearms manufacturer, for example, or a private prison company, because you think it's a good business and it, and it genuinely has, has good returns, but there is eventually enough kind of, of a social welling up of anti-gun maker and anti-private prison sentiment that, for example, legislation changes in a way that negatively impacts those businesses, then in order to make a, uh, you know, a, a decision that is in the fiduciary duty of your clients, surely you have to kind of account for, for politics in making your investment decision. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would disagree with that because you know, you could imagine a swelling up of something on the conservative side. Maybe maybe the Christian community swells up and speaks against something that might be, you know, very socially acceptable in today's world. Should Goldman then discriminate against those people because, you know, the Christian community's spoken up against the issue? I mean, you know, you can you can see a swelling up from people and a, and a wide variety of issues. And I think it's extremely dangerous when you have our, our investment banks start to be the, the social police of who can who can access credit and who cannot access credit. It's actually, you know, this is obviously not the topic for today, but it's a big reason why I got into Bitcoin in the first place is I think access to capital is a huge problem. And I don't think, frankly, that our banks have done a good job. And, you know, when they stepped into that realm on the issues you, you brought about, I don't feel sorry for them. If anything, I feel like they made a critical mistake. Right. So I guess, I, I guess what I'm what I'm getting at, um, which you sort of touched on there, is that it is around your point about being sort of a apolitical is that it, surely good investing and kind of standing by your client's fiduciary duty is is at some point it's it's going to just have to get political. Like, um, I guess there's a difference between investment firms being conscious of those risks and how they shape markets and change outcomes for particular companies they're invested in and kind of you know trying to be in the driving seat around those issues like is that the the division that you see or or am i getting it wrong yeah i mean i mean i don't think that the reason that you know you had goldman change their view on how they would finance private prison or finance a firearm manufacturer was because they thought legislation was coming down the pipeline that was going to put these companies out of business like if that was the actual fundamental reason that they did that that could make sense i mean but you have not seen that actually change legislatively. You've only seen it change through the asset management industry. And that's what we like to call, you know, the asset management industry pushing through the back door what our policymakers couldn't get done through the front door. And I think that's, you know, the much more common situation you're seeing here than actually a true evaluation of risk, like that's not influenced at all by po politics and saying, you know what? 
we need to cut off capital here because right around the corner, Congress is going to legislate something that's going to make these companies extremely more risky. I mean, even if that was your view, I would say that like if I was a, if I was an investment banker, I would say, okay, well, I need to properly charge for risk that I actually see coming down the pipeline. But what I, what I, what I see in practice is not actually that happening. It's, it's political pressure for these, you know, Wall Street banks to change their behavior. And, and I think that they were happy to change, you know, because they wanted to be in the good graces, graces of our, of our politicians. So kind of reading between the lines here, it, it sounds like you kind of, um, it, it seems like you have quite a lot of faith in the, in the United States' political system to actually enact change. I mean, you're saying that um, it shouldn't be down to investment companies to kind of drive change when it comes to things like climate change and that kind of thing, that we should, we should just trust in, in the politics and, and trust in our elected officials to make the right call and, and trust in um, what many see as a, a kind of somewhat broken political system to, to enact change. It, it sounds uh, almost, you know, the, almost utopic in a way. Well, I surely think that's what's in the best interest of shareholders. And, and I actually think it's what the average American wants. There was a large Brunswick poll a couple of years ago and, it, and asked, two, asked a question to two different groups of people. It asked a question of, do you think corporations should take stands in political or social issues? They asked managers across corporate America and then they asked everyday citizens. And it was interesting because two thirds of just the everyday citizens said, no, we don't want corporations to take a stand in these issues. While two thirds of managers said, yes, we think it's important. So this, this kind of just fundamentally goes to like a divide where I think our managerial class thinks they have this role that they need to play, that American democracy, our political system can't handle these sorts of issues and we need to step up and be the change agent. And I fundamentally disagree with that view. And I think that the way that it's implemented is, is not in a way that, you know, the everyday citizen wants. And I think that when you go down that route, you essentially, you basically kill off democracy. You kill off the ability for citizens to have a vote because you're, you know, a handful of, you know, asset managers are the largest owners in almost every company in America. And I, to me, that that ruins our ability to operate functionally as a society. Although, you know, it, it's not lost on me your point that clearly our political system has not been working well for several years. But, you know, I I think that if corporations became apolitical, they would be forced to act on some of these issues. Hmm. So do you think ESG is killing democracy? <laughs> um, I do think that concentration in the asset management industry has been a negative impact on, on democracy. I don't know if I would take it to that extreme of a statement, but, but I don't think it's been a positive impact, uh, concentrated ownership in the asset management industry. I think that we need to get back to a place where people have a vote and they have a say. And I think that you know, strive plays an important part of that. And, you know, we're not trying to be the answer to every single person. And, you know, hopefully by, you know, making people aware that, they, you know, most people have exposure to the stock market and you have a voice, choose which asset manager you think rep best represents your interest. I think we can get to a better place as a society. That's a much more diplomatic way of putting it, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Well, we should wrap it up there, but Matt, thanks for coming on. It's been great chatting to you. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here.
Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks once again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, or even if you didn't, please let us know. You can always reach us at team at ninefin.com or you can find us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Don't forget to check in with my colleague Kat Hidalgo in London next week for the latest on European markets. As ever, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. So for now, goodbye and take care.